the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. We are an iHeart station. We are part of the Salem Broadcasting System. And we are at, if you want the website, you can listen to me anywhere in the world. If you got a headset or some speakers on your corn pewter, you can Google me at am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Sunday. And backing me up is Bill in the studio. Good to have you, buddy. Great to be back, sir. We gave him Easter off. I don't know why. I'm going to have to call Barb and make sure he gets a pay cut for not being there for me last week. Oh, my God. Okay, a couple of things. First, I want to talk about Legionnaire's disease. And you probably haven't heard of this much or you haven't heard of it lately. My generation, we heard a lot about this in the late 70s and 1980s because of the outbreak of this pneumonia a very bad disease, and it happened, I think, in Philadelphia. There was a, a convention of uh, the American Legion, and several of the American Legion folks who were staying at one hotel came down with this bacterial pneumonia, which was new to medical science and was finally determined to be uh, a gram-negative bacteria. I know that doesn't mean a lot, but uh, it has an unusual effect. It's not just a bacteria that will sit in your lungs and and grow and fester. It also elicits a really nasty uh, immunologic response, and uh, it's got a high mortality rate. Now, I've seen two cases, one last year and one this year, both in Canadians, and I'm not sure of the connection. Maybe there's a, a hotel or motel that they're staying at on their drive down here that's uh, got a little reservoir. It was determined that this bacteria was living in the air conditioning systems of the hotel. I think, again, in Philadelphia, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And it had a high mortality rate. And the reason I want to talk about this is because it's something that doctors as well as patients and nurses and everyone needs to know about. And you need to have a high index of suspicion because the antibiotics that we use are different from the standard antibiotics we use for community-acquired, what we call outpatient pneumonias or walking pneumonias. These are largely gram-positive pneumococcal pneumonias. 
and that's why we have the vaccine against the pneumococcal pneumonias. But this is a bad one. This one, this one will kill you. And we lost a guy younger than me. He was in his mid sixties last year from Canada. Came down here on a Thursday. He went to the emergency department because he had a cough and he thought he was getting a little, a little bronchial infection. They gave him some antibiotics, and he came back on Sunday, and was deathly ill. Although he didn't feel bad, he was huffing and puffing. His oxygen levels were very low in his bloodstream, and we admitted him. And my index of suspicion was high because there was involvement of the liver. The liver enzymes had gone up. And this is something to look for. And as well, I did what's called a sedimentation rate on the patient, as this is another marker. With most pneumonias, when you do a sedimentation rate, it's normal. The sedimentation rate is, is a, a column of blood that's been anticoagulated. It won't clot. And then we see how long it takes for the red blood cells to, follow, to fall through the serum or the plasma, whatever you want to call it. And if it's up then we think of an inflammatory response like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or a chronic infection like a bone infection, or we think of a disease like Legionnaires, Legionella, Legionnaires pneumonia. And so I did that too and put him on the right antibiotics. But unfortunately, if you don't get to this bug right away and treat it, then it's almost always fatal. It's just a bad disease. So it, it had been three or four days before he had had the right treatment for this. And by Monday afternoon, he was intubated, had the tube down in his, in his airway, on the ventilator, sedated. And by Friday, he had died. Sad situation. The family, husband and wife, had come down here for a two- or three-week vacation. And uh, poor gal, she ended up losing her mate. And uh, I held her as she cried, and she said, I don't understand. We we're just coming on vacation. So this is a bad disease. I've got another one in the intensive care unit now, and it's going to be touch and go with him. And I just want to caution all the doctors and nurses as well as the lay people who are listening today that they be aware of this disease. It's unusual, but if there are concerns, make sure that you – Take the appropriate steps if you're in the medical profession or if you're a patient. Make sure that you mention this as a possibility because the illness is much graver than the presentation. So that's my medical for the morning. Now I want to switch over to Korea, the North-South Korea thing and the conflict with North Korea and it's an interesting history. I visited Korea with the wife, what, 15 years ago, roughly, and to meet the family. And a fascinating country, really enjoyed it. My brother-in-law, who had a bad back, asked me if I would drive him. So I drove across the South Korean peninsula, basically from Seoul, the capital of South Korea, and previously the capital of all of Korea before the Korean War in the 1950s. Drove all the way down to Busan, which is in the southeast on the tip of the peninsula. And it uh, is the big port, one of the biggest ports in the world. And it was interesting to see how advanced 
the country was, and they still thought of themselves 15 years ago as being way behind the United States. I think largely on the basis of the size of their their houses. Uh, we have bigger homes overall, but they had everything else that we had, and uh, very affluent interstates, power plants, tall buildings, skyscrapers, uh, rapidly growing movie industry, production of automobiles, tons of automobiles, and they've taken over the world market in the past 15, 20 years in terms of auto sales and also in terms of appliances. And you go to a country like India and everybody has Korean appliances. We have Korean appliances. We have, I think we have Samsung washer and dryer and LG. And these are fast selling, good quality products that have taken over the world market. The South Koreans have progressed tremendously. We're headed back there this summer. We're going to leave at the end of May, spend a, a week in China, northern China, and then head over to the Korean Peninsula, visit the family, and do the tour again. Nice family. They actually liked me, which was unusual. So I was happy to, to meet my brother-in-law's and my sister-in-law's. But I got to tell you that there's a big difference between North Korea and South Korea. And it's, it's not new. There's been tension between these two uh, warring clans going back to antiquity. Uh, the peninsula has been divided off and on between different dynasties and empires. And it was finally united at least for a few hundred years during the Shilla reign, I believe. And it had become really quite of an advanced culture. And this was in the 13, 14, 1500s. My wife is sitting here and she says it started way before that. But if you, if you read the history, the golden age is after they were united and the, the famous emperor or king that did the most, what was his name, my dear? Who introduced the alphabet and the language and all that? King Sejong was his name. Now, the Koreans had a, had a metal, movable-type press 100 to 150 years before the West did, before the Gutenberg press. They had ironclad ships when they fought the the Japanese after one of the invasions by the Japanese and they had put metal on the sides of their sailing ships so that the Japanese shells would not sink their ships and they actually defeated the Japanese. So very advanced culture, but then they got very paranoid about the outside world and closed the, the kingdom to the outside world and they fell behind. And in the, early parts of the 20th century, the Japanese once again stepped in and they took over Korea. By the way, they're, they're basically the same blood and there's a lot of animosity, of course, because of the Japanese incursions into Korea off and on. Uh, if you think of uh, what I want you to do so you get an idea of the geography is, is pretend like you have a, a ball the size of your, of your hand in your palm and you put your other fingers, uh, you're holding it in your left hand or if you're left-handed the other way, and you put your right-hand fingers and thumb at the middle of the ball, the equator. Now, you can see the distance between your fingers at the equator. Now, gradually 
let your fingers slide up. And as you go to the top of the ball, you'll see that your fingers get closer because the earth is a ball. And of course, the circumference at the top of the earth is uh, much shorter than it is at the middle of the earth. And so you have a number of countries at the northern edges of the, of the hemisphere, China, Russia, Korea, Japan. And as you go further north, they get closer together. And as a matter of fact, they all touch each other. And they've all vied over this land for centuries. And the Koreans, at least with the Northern Empire at one time, had control of Manchuria, which is the northeast state in China that borders North Korea. And they had a pretty good-sized empire. By the way, the, the Great Wall of China was built in part to keep these folks out of China. The Mongolians, the pure Mongolians, came out of northern Asia, and they populated what we think of as Siberia and Manchuria and the Korean Peninsula. And they even came across the Siberian-Alaskan land bridge before the last ice age ended and populated the Americas, and that's the Native Americans, quote, quote. You can't tell the difference between Native Americans and Koreans and Japanese if you put them all in the same garb and the same hairstyles. And, you know, they, they all look alike. I mean, they're because they're, they're first cousins, or maybe even closer than that. Who knows? So you don't see many pure, quote, quote, Native Americans anymore unless you go out into the Northwest or up into Alaska because there's so much interbreeding with the European and the uh, African peoples that have populated North America. So here you got this tiny area, this little corner of the world that folks have been fighting over since time immemorial. And the Japanese defeated the Russians and took the northern islands away from, from Russia at the turn of the last century and started their empire, took over Korea and Manchuria. And, of course, they were imperialist right wing. And down in China, you had Mao leading the left wing, the People's Army, trying to defeat the right wing Chiang Kai-shek and the imperial Japanese and the communists even teamed up with the United States and Great Britain during World War II. But after the war, things quickly fell apart. And the division was decided upon at the end of World War II. The Russians came into World War II late. They came in at the very end against Japan. They had promised they would, and they essentially did little, if any, heavy lifting. But they wanted to grab territory, and they did. And so it was decided that the Russians would uh, be the provincial governors of North Korea and the United States of South Korea during the transition. And the 38th parallel is where they cut the, the Korean peninsula in half. Well, this is not going to work, as we all know. And it's still a problem today. All of this quickly unraveled. The American Secretary of State made a big speech in which he said that the American sphere of military influence included Japan and the Philippines and other Pacific nations, but not the Korean Peninsula. 
And so Stalin and Mao said, oop, here's our chance. Stalin did not want to enter the war with any troops. And so the alliance was that Stalin would bankroll the war because the Chinese communists had no money. And Mao would supply soldiers if the Americans came close to their border, the Yalu River, which borders, which is the border between Korea and China, North Korea. Well, the war unfolded, and the North attacked the South and drove the South all the way back to the very tip of the southern, southeasternmost part of the peninsula. And it looked like it was going to be a, a defeat for the South Koreans and the small number of American troops that were there. And then General MacArthur landed at Incheon, which is to the west of the capital. It's the port there. Big airport there now. Nice one, too. Beautiful airport. One of the prettiest in the world. Unbelievable. And so this precipitated the American invasion of the peninsula in force. And the Americans drove the North Koreans back quickly. And when they got close to the Yalu River, the Chinese came across with hundreds of thousands of troops. And the carnage on the North Korean and Chinese side was unbelievable. The Americans had better equipment and better supplied, and the Chinese quickly outran their supply lines as they marched south. They did manage to push the Americans back, but at a great cost. And so the peninsula was fought over for several years, three, four years, and in 1953 an armistice was finally agreed upon, but the North Koreans never considered the war over. The South Koreans got on with their life, and Sigmund Rhee took over as their leader. He was later deposed by Bak Chung-hee. You don't have to remember all these names. Uh, but Sigmund Rhee was kind of an intellectual right-wing defeat guy who uh, went after his enemies, just like the northern guys went after their enemies. And this led to animosities. And the South Koreans, there was a large faction that resisted Sigmund Rhee and what he wanted to do. So finally, Bak Chung, he came in and he conquered the Sigmund Rhee gang and he forced the country to modernize. My wife, when she grew up, had no indoor plumbing other than a hand pump. Uh, they had electricity, but uh, they still used an outhouse and uh, they were way behind the rest of the world in part because of the Japanese and in part because of their own isolationism over the centuries. And so Bak Chung-hee came in and he forced the country to modernize, built highways, built power plants. Uh, between 1970 and 1990, the country all of a sudden had indoor plumbing, uh, reliable electricity, hot and cold running water, interstates. Uh, it was flourishing. And in the north, they had built their whole economy around the potential of being reattacked by the South Koreans and the Americans. And they have held on to this as their reason for existence and have been able to keep their people largely enslaved to this ideal that they have to prepare for war. And in doing so, they have very little else. Their military machine is their is a big part of their economy, 
And they also sell a lot of coal to the Chinese, which is a big part of their economy. The Chinese have finally agreed to quit buying coal for a while until next January 1st, put pressure on the North Koreans. Now, the North Koreans are trying to build a nuclear program with the sole aim of defeating South Korea, Japan, and eventually the United States. Good luck with that, guys. And, of course, there's a lot of chutzpah and a lot of bravado and a lot of chest pounding, but really not much armaments to take us on. And South Korea is 50 to 60 million people now, and North Korea is only 20 million. And so it's really an upside-down situation. By the way, did anybody see the, the, uh, the photo shot of Vice President Pence at the demilitarized zone? Fascinating to see one of the uh, North Korean soldiers apparently had a camera and was taking pictures of the Vice President of the United States. I don't think it was for any espionage or security reasons. They're probably going to take it home to his kids and show them that he got that close to the Vice President of the United States. And the Chinese have got themselves backed into a hole when it comes to North Korea. They have created over a half century of propaganda around the Korean War and around what they considered to be, or they claimed to be, atrocities by the Americans against the North Koreans and the Chinese troops. They claimed that we used gas and and uh, chemicals against the North Koreans and the Chinese, and this was one of the reasons they had such a high uh, um, mortality and uh, casualty rate during this war. There's even a a Holocaust-style museum in the city of Dangdong, D-A-N-D-O-N-G, which is on the Yalu River across from North Korea, close to the mouth of the Yalu River, which empties into the uh, Gulf of Korea and then into the North China Sea and then eventually into the Pacific. And in this Holocaust-style museum, they have pictures of all the atrocities they claim the Americans and the United Nations and the South Korean forces committed against the North Koreans and the, and the Chinese, predominantly the Manchurians, And so there's still a lot of animosity and a lot of strong feelings in at least that part of China and the northern part about this war, this conflict in the Korean Peninsula from 1950 to 1953. And now the Chinese are trying to figure out the government, how do we back away from this since a lot of it's not true? The Americans didn't use chemicals. The United Nations uh, did not allow that. And that's never been part of our, our philosophy of war anyway. Nuclears, that's different. But chemicals, no. We've never seen a, a need for, nor were we willing to use that. Going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, we did not use biological or chemical warfare. Although the British did, they tried to infect the population with smallpox and chickenpox. And by the way, Washington was smart enough to have all of his troops immunized, all of the regulars, the Continental Army, against smallpox, which was risky business back then since the vaccinations were not uh, controlled by any FDA type of organization. And there were a few deaths from the vaccinations. But in doing so, all of the colonials adopted what 
General Washington, future President Washington, had imposed on his own troops, and everybody voluntarily was vaccinated, or most of the country, against smallpox. So we were the first country on earth with a mass immunization program, and we pretty much put a stop to smallpox in the United States at that time. Fascinating. So the the North Koreans and the Chinese have made up this story to keep everybody stirred up. And, and some people may even believe it, that the massive numbers of North Koreans and Chinese that were killed during the Korean War were obviously because of some chemical or biological warfare, since there's no way that their soldiers could have been killed in such numbers by such smaller numbers of Americans and United Nations troops. In the United Nations troop, there were maybe 20 or 30 other countries involved in fighting in the, in the Korean Peninsula. Well, the unholy alliance, from our point of view, between Stalin and Mao and the leader of North Korea, which is Kim, Kim Jong-un, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, yeah. Kim Jong-il and then Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-il was the first leader of the North Korean state. Kim Il-sung, my wife is telling me. That's what I said the first time, and then she corrected me. Dang, Bill, don't have your wife on the show. <clears throat> it doesn't work, dude, <laughs> especially when she thinks she knows more than you. Now, and of course, I'll let her think that. That makes for a happy marriage. So there's still evidence in China and North Korea to show that it was an American imperialistic war. It was a blunder on both sides. It was a blunder because the dumb Democrats once again made public announcements, which thank God Trump's not doing, about what they would and would not do. And once they said, oh, we're not going to defend the Korean Peninsula, at least that's what the Russians and the Chinese thought, then the door was open for the North with the help of North Korea, with the help of China and Russia to invade the South and unite the peninsula under communism. And also the Russians and the Chinese did not believe from their intelligence that the United States would come to the defense of South Korea. But Truman saw it as a point, President Truman then was president, a point at which communism had to be stopped, and this was considered a great threat to the West and to the uh, United States and Western Europe, and there was tension. We did not know at that time whether the Russians would try to launch an invasion of Europe after Germany had been defeated. So there was a lot going on, and of course the Russians did not want to risk a, a frontal confrontation with the United States, realizing the massive industrial capabilities of the United States, which had helped Russia out during World War II and supplied incalculable aid, both in material and equipment, to the Russians in their fight against the Germans, as well as our fight against the Germans. So there was a lot of misunderstanding on both sides, and this thing had drug on for three years, and finally the Russians had had enough, and they said they weren't going to bankroll it anymore, and they didn't want to fly any more sorties over the Korean Peninsula in defense of the Chinese and North Korean troops. And it, it did get to the 
to the bargaining table and an armistice was called, but there's never been a peace agreement. And the North is ready, if they're ever capable of it, which I don't think they will be, at least not in my lifetime, to take on the South and whoever else the South has backing them. And the unholy alliance, again, will be between the South Koreans and the Japanese and the Americans, and the Chinese are going to be stuck in the middle. Now, I don't think we need to go to war over this. This can be handled by the Chinese by just going into the North Koreans and saying we're cutting off all trade because North Korea, 90% of its trade is with China. And the Chinese have formed a close alliance economically with the South Koreans. The South Koreans are so industrious and so uh, talented and so driven that they've taken over the world market in a number of areas, electronics, automobiles, appliances. This little country, little pipsqueak of a country, took me about three hours to drive across South Korea with no traffic. You can take the bullet train, maybe four or five hours. I'm exaggerating a little bit uh, because you have to stop and you know hit the restrooms and there's traffic and all that. But you can take the bullet train from the southeastern part all the way up to the airport at Incheon, which is in the northwest part of South Korea, takes you about two and a half, three hours on a bullet train. So it's really not a big peninsula, at least the southern part. And this little pipsqueak country that's sandwiched between these two industrial and military giants, China and Japan, has managed to survive all these centuries. And not only survive, but continue to carve out a niche in the region and now in the world. And I think it's going to be tough for the North to find the support it needs, especially with someone like Trump in the White House who's not afraid to drop a a bomb here and there and let people know he's not kidding around. And I'm, I'm really confident that the Chinese are going to be more proactive in terms of stopping the North Koreans from this nonsense of developing nuclear warheads and putting them on missiles and threatening the South and the United States and Japan, who they perceive as their uh, enemies of a thousand years, and get these people on the road to economic development and integration into the world community and modernization and to take care of their own people, which they're not doing. They're, they've, they're on a wartime footing still. And everything, all production basically is geared towards keeping them ready for war with the South and with the United States and Japan. Now, this is craziness. I mean, you have to think of Japan in pre-World War II and World War II trying to take on the United States, and it was a fairly strong power. Now you got North Korea, which basically has nothing, and they want to take us on. It ain't going to work. We got Will from Sebring on. Will, I haven't heard from you in a while, guy. You alive? Yeah, I'm alive. Good, good to hear from you. How you been? How you okay? been? Good. Yeah, man. Been, you doing good? Yeah, I'm doing good. Doing good. Yes, hey, sir. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, there, is there any way that you think maybe some of their generals may like uh, try to take them out and then uh, get get back to reality? Or? 
Well, I think that the the problem with North Korea is that uh, it's still very Confucian, which is a philosophy in the East that says that dad is the big guy and there's only one dad. And that's why the Chinese emperors and the Korean kings and Daewongs have managed to hold on to power for so long. And the the North Korean higher echelon of the military, they live fairly well. So they're going to have to think about both their their socialization, their emotional attachments to what they perceive as the correct way to structure a country, and also their lifestyle. Because you know what? If they throw them out and let the United States in, they may also be taken to task and held accountable for atrocities and put on trial for crimes against humanity because what they've done to their own people is is just it's it's sinful it's atrocious it's, yeah, it's no, I, well, well, well said um but don't they ever look at like south korea and all the other countries that are, that are thriving with capitalism and they go why don't we try this out and they just really that commute up well i think the problem is is it's a stalin style state where if you do something that's against the state, that somebody will rat you out. And if they don't rat you out and they get caught, then they'll be uh, incarcerated or killed along with you. And and one of the shopkeepers on the Chinese side of the border, where the Yalu turns into little more than a creek, uh, was talking with a reporter from Christian Science Monitor a few months ago, and he said that the North Koreans will occasionally come across and do a little trading, but they go right back. And the reporter said, well, why would they do that when they could escape? He said, well, if they get caught by Chinese immigration, they'll be sent back to North Korea, and of course they'll be imprisoned and enslaved, and their families will also be enslaved. And if they escape and are not caught by the Chinese uh, immigration officials, the INS, as it were, that their families would be persecuted. So there's a big incentive uh, for everybody to stay within the fold and behave because nobody knows who's going to do what to whom, and everybody's ratting everybody out, and they're all scared to death. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough situation, and fear is it's, it's a bond that will drive people to do certain things and behave, but in the long term, fear is not the best way to to control and rule a country. The best way is to not have fear so that people can interact and uh, grow and do what they do best and thrive and prosper. And I think that the Chinese are figuring this out. And of course the South Koreans, they're, I mean, you know, they're wide open. They argue like a bunch of kids and they even get in fist fights in the street over things like which Buddhist sect is going to get the, the building that's another Buddhist sect of monks and priests have, have left. And, you know, the Buddhists are nonviolent, by the way. But there they are yeah, in the streets. Fist, yeah, they're fist fighting over who's going to get this apartment building that some other uh, sect has abandoned but still belongs to the Buddhists. So it's it's interesting to see. And, uh, you know, there's a wide variety of, of opinions on life and property and politics and religion in South Korea. Uh, it's but in North Korea it's very monolithic, and if if you step out of line, you know your your life's going to get a lot harder, a lot quicker. You remember you remember uh, the footage of uh, the Buddhist monks in uh, Vietnam catching themselves on fire. Uh, remember that? Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, kind of hard to. I'm sorry to bring that up. I hope no, I hope no kids were listening. That yeah, was hard to hard to look at. I had to walk away. But uh, yeah. It, it's tough. 
I got to tell you, I, I was in South Korea. We were in Seoul, and, and and my wife and her sisters. I had to use the restroom, and we just come out of the subway, and they said, "Wait, we're going back in." And the subway in Seoul, it's it's a big system, so there's shops and malls underground that lead into the platform areas, kind of like uh, Montreal, Canada, and some other cities that have extensive underground railway systems. And so they go down there, and I sit out on the steps that leads up to the street, and there's a Buddhist priest, and he's there with his his tambourine, and he's pounding it and chanting it, and people are coming by and, and giving him a shekel or two and giving him a little money, and he gives him a blessing, and that's what he's doing for the day. And, and he looks over at me, and he says, you like Bushy? President Bush. I said, yeah, I like Bushy. And so he said, you like Clinton? I said, no, I don't like Clinton. He says, I don't like Clinton either. So we went through every president from Truman forward. He hated every Democrat, loved every Republican. And yeah. loved, I mean, you know, it, it's. I didn't, I, didn't, are, I, didn't love, I didn't love Bushy all that much, but I, I loved him a lot more than I did Clinton and, and uh, Obama. Because I'm, I guess I'm kind of a right winger or something, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, Will, I got to go to a break, buddy. So yeah, thanks for calling, and I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Voting in the presidential election in France today, and that's not all. In Montreal, thousands of resident French nationals have waited in lines that have snaked at one point to eight blocks to cast their votes in the presidential election in their home country. Lawmakers coming back to Washington this week, they'll find a familiar quagmire on health care legislation. They've also got to find a new funding routine for the government or... The government could shut down by the end of the week. For the first time in three weeks of protest, demonstrators in Venezuela have crossed from the wealthier eastern side of the nation's capital to the west without encountering resistance from state security. They're protesting near starvation in some parts of the country. And Erin Moran, the former child actress who starred as Joni Cunningham in the sitcoms Happy Days and Joni Loves Chachi, has died. She was 56 years old. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. 
Make plans now for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure to the Holy Land. The Stand with Israel Tour is happening this fall. Join Dennis Prager and Mike Gallagher on a nine-day trip to Israel that will offer you timely insights into Israel's fascinating past and promising future. In the context of Jerusalem's 50-year anniversary, experience the Western Wall, modern Tel Aviv, the Dead Sea, and much more, all in the comfort and safety of first-class accommodations. For trip details, visit StandWithIsraelTour.com. My name is Leslie, and my daughter, Lucy, goes to Christian school. For years, Faith Talk 570 and 910 has been helping Bay Area parents provide their children with an affordable private Christian school education. You know, I went to Christian school growing up, and I had wanted Lucy to go there. As I've been going back to work and trying to ramp up, having the 50% off thanks to Faith Talk has been huge for us. That's right. At ChristianTuitions.com, you'll find a wide selection of private Christian schools in our area with half off the first year's tuition. It has been such a gift for her. She loves the people there, absolutely loves the teachers. They pray before each class. It's just been a blessing. Half off at ChristianTuitions.com may sound too good to be true, but it is true. They talk is wonderful, and you all are considering a private Christian education and trying to really make it work. They can make it happen. Learn more and get half off your first year at ChristianTuitions.com. That's ChristianTuitions.com. Partly sunny for your Sunday, high 87 tonight. Rather cloudy with a shower or thunderstorm in spots late, low 72. Morning rain in a few places as we begin the work week tomorrow. Otherwise, partly sunny, not as warm, breezy in the afternoon, high 79. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Chuck Ellis for AM 860, The Enter. I touch your lips and all at once the sparks go flying Those devil lips that know so well the art of lying And though I see the danger, still the flame grows higher I know I must surrender to your kiss of fire Just like a torch you set the soul within me burning little music from the early 1950s to remind us of the era that we're talking about. And really, it's, it's continued on to today and the North Koreans. I'm talking about the conflict on the Korean Peninsula and what we should be doing about it, which I think we are doing, the, the things that I want to see done. The North Koreans are still belligerent and as recently as 2016 have attacked South Korean ships and, and people and there's been intermittent shelling of South Korea over the... Uh, several decades since the Korean War. And this has been the undoing of a lot of, uh, of people in history, including Douglas MacArthur, the, what the left calls the American Caesar, because uh, MacArthur defied President Truman and wouldn't stand down. MacArthur wanted to bomb the uh, Chinese and the North Koreans with nuclear devices. And Truman said, are you crazy? You'll precipitate a worldwide nuclear war. He was afraid of a confrontation with the Russians, as the Russians were afraid of a confrontation with the United States. We didn't want a World War III. And Doug MacArthur was relieved of his command for disobeying his commanding officer, Truman. And MacArthur's career had spanned, uh, whoa, over a half a century of a military man as a military man. So it was the undoing of, of MacArthur. It uh, heralded a change from the Democrats to the Republicans in the election of 52, 
because the country felt that the that the war in North and South Korea was uh, a hopeless situation, and they wanted somebody who could go in and fix it, and that's how Eisenhower was elected in part. And Truman fell into disrepute for a number of decades. He's been revived in recent years by the historians as someone who took a stand against communism, as someone who took a stand for civil rights, and um, he integrated the army and did a number of things that were popular and yet unpopular and controversial at the time. So it was an interesting, if if not uh trying time for America and certainly for the Koreans and, and the, the Chinese. The Chinese came out of the war in North Korea, the Korean War. They came out deeply in debt to the Russians and animosities arose between the two countries over the Russians' help or lack of help as the Chinese perceived it and the great debt that the Chinese owed the Russians. Their economy was in the tank for a decade and Mao struggled along with his oligarchy of communist leaders to bring China out of their economic and social morass, as it were. They finally did with the death of Mao and the opening of the country to the West and trade between the United States and China and other parts of the world. And by the way, China is still one of our major trading partners, and we're, along with the European Union, one of their major trading partners, one of two. So we buy a lot of stuff, and we also sell a lot of stuff to them, a lot of stuff that they can't produce on their own as of yet, including big commercial airliners, the ones that Boeing makes. And uh, it's, it's a very close relationship in terms of trade and economy. And I've always contended that the best way to conquer the world is to trade with it, and that's been our philosophy as a nation. And so we have a lot of leverage over the the Chinese. Yes, if we put an embargo on Chinese goods or added uh, uh, an import tax onto their goods, the cost of living for us would rise. But we're a huge industrial power, and we can certainly produce all that we need right here. We really don't need the world for many things. However, we do need the world to pull together as one because we're, we're all way too, too overarmed and we'll destroy each other. At least that's the, the mutual deterrent that we all believe in. But I'd rather think of, of our relationship with China as being friendly and uh, being one of trading and of socialization and of uh, tourism. And by the way, the wife and the son and I are going to northern China at the end of May, and we're going to spend a few weeks in Korea too, visiting the family, South Korea. But I think that Trump has the right idea, and a lot of people say, oh, you know, this guy's crazy, and what's he talking about, and what's he going to rant and rave about now? But, uh, Behind the scenes, the pressure that's been put on the Chinese uh, is 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 not light. It has to do with economics. And if you want to see the Chinese people revolt, just throw them into a recession, either of their own making or of the uh, Europeans and the Americans making by raising tariffs on their imported goods and refusing to sell them 
certain things that they need that they're not yet producing on their own. And the people will be furious. That's a billion people. And it's not a one united country like we think of the United States as being, even though we have regional uh, factions, the southeast and the northeast and the west. Uh, there's still major divisions within China, and they actually speak two languages. A smaller population in the south speaks Cantonese. In the north, the majority of the people speak Mandarin, and they don't understand each other when they speak because the languages are so far apart. And they've got unrest and upheaval in the West. They have a large Muslim population in the West, and so terrorism is a problem. that We don't hear about it because they don't publicize it. They just go in and take care of the problem. And everybody's forced to live together whether they like it or not. And if you don't, well, then you're in prison or you're shot. So they've got a lot of problems, and they need to continue on their current course of modernization, of economic growth, of industrialization, and of uh, theity and goodwill with the rest of the world, because without it, they're not going to make it. They're going to have a hard time, and the ruling elite will not be the ruling elite for long. There's still a lot of corruption. The communists basically took away land and money and wealth from the small upper class in China during the revolution that Mao led and said they were going to redistribute it. Of course, it was redistributed into their pockets first, and the land was quote, quote, given to the people, but the people didn't really own it. And, of course, that's one of the big problems with socialism and communism is that if you don't have a, a dog in the fight, you're not going to be that interested. And so production wasn't what they thought it would be, and they had natural disasters, the war in North Korea, and so on and so forth. And now they're finally on, a, on the road to becoming a first world nation. But that can be stymied at any point simply by us refusing to allow their goods into the country without paying heavy import taxes on it. You and I would suffer, but the Chinese would suffer more. We are very dependent upon the Chinese, and we also sell them a lot of goods. One of the best-selling cars, at least a few years ago in China, was a Buick, a little itty-bitty Buick that was manufactured in China, but added to the bottom line of uh, GM. And, of course, they buy Boeing planes, they buy all kinds of computer parts, and they make parts, and they buy technology. And so it goes on and on, and we're very intertwined economically now. And we can put pressure on them. And I don't think they really know how great our resolve is, because we will debate openly. And you won't see that in China. They won't debate openly. They're still not that liberal. They're free to voice their opinions as long as it, quote, quote, doesn't do any harm to the country. And, of course, who decides whether it's harmful to the country or not? Well, the ruling elite, that's who decides. Whereas in the United States and Europe, people can say pretty much what they want with impunity. You can't yell fire in a, in a theater, but 
you can go downtown and say, you know, I'm a neo-Nazi or, or I'm a communist. And if you get a permit, you can even stand around in the park and hand out buttons and literature on what you believe and don't believe. In the same way in Europe, we were at a, at a flea market in northern Italy, and there was a neo-fascist there who loved Mussolini. He was selling some paintings. And he gave us the whole spiel in broken English about why Mussolini was such a great guy, the fascist leader of Italy during World War II. And it's fascinating to see the differences in the world between the free world and the world that is not democratic. And so the Chinese, who know about the world now, they're fast learning about the world they send their kids over here to go to college and university and get graduate degrees. And they go back home and they take with them the knowledge, not only of what they learned in school, but also of our customs and our open arguments and our verbal battles in the papers and in the press and on the radio. And it's a changing time. And, and so the, the ruling elite in China are trying to figure out, well, how are we going to back down from this propaganda of 50 years or 60 or 70 years about the horrible Americans when we're sending our kids over there to go to school and we're trading with them? They're one of our best trading partners and we're buying their goods left and right. Well, they're going to have to figure out a way to back down and calm the North Koreans down because we just cannot tolerate a small nuclear power on the Korean Peninsula. It can reach too many countries. You probably didn't know this, but Attu, the, the southwesternmost island in the Alaskan archipelago, the string of islands that makes that little hook around the, the Bering Sea, just to the south of it, that Attu Island is closer to Japan and North Korea in Russia and China than it is to the mainland United States. It's further from Seattle, Washington to Attu than it is from Attu to Vladivostok or to the North and uh, Korean and Chinese border, the, the mouth of the Yalu River. Uh, and it's fascinating to see that we are so close in so many ways and we can exert so much influence and power just by our trade and our goodwill and our enmity uh, has to simmer down more against the North. But we do have to continue to put pressure on the Chinese to get the North Koreans in tow. We've got to do it or we're going to end up with a major conflict in the United States and throughout the world. So we're getting close to the end of the show. Did you say, Bill, how much time we got left? A minute and change. Oh, boy. And we've got to thank Will and everybody else for listening and, and calling in. Don't forget about Legionnaire's disease. This is a bad problem, and we don't want to see anybody uh, die from a treatable disease. So you get in early if you're sick and get it taken care of, and don't go to some therapeutic nihilist who tells you you're going to be okay with just uh, some rest and fluids. You go see a doctor who's going to treat you, and doctors who are not treating aggressively Get on the stick. You know, we don't have to have this nihilism and, and the name of saving money for society. We're here to treat the patients, and society is treated secondarily. And as I tell the interns, don't practice medicine with money on your mind. 
practice medicine with the patient and health care of the general population on your mind. Do what's right. First, do what's right. And then you'll make a decent living. Society will figure out how to pay for it, and all will work out. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Bill, you have a great weekend, buddy. I'm out of here. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.